You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, a very special bonus episode covering the Hellraiser franchise, featuring sex dungeons, centibites, whips, hooks, chains, pain, pleasure, puzzle boxes, magicians, private detectives, psychopsychiatrists, Lucifer himself, and the world's grossest mattress. Martin. Yes. Jesus. What? another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, so on a scale from one to 10, how gross is the mattress, in your expert opinion, from Hellraiser 2? Man, I've reviewed a lot, and this is a solid 11. <laughs> a, scene, a scene is so fucking nasty. It's the Spinal Tap mattress. Oh, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's like... That is seriously one of those scenes. I remember the like where I was when I first saw it, and how, like it's as disturbing today as it was when I was younger. It's so messed up. It's gnarly. Like that's one of the gnarliest scenes from any horror movie I've ever seen in my life. Period. And in case uh, you were still guessing, we're talking about the Hellraiser franchise with this episode. It's one of our Halloween bonus episodes for this month. And uh, Martin, let's just start here. Beyond your mattress ratings. Um, when was the first time that you encountered Hellraiser? Was it with the Hellbound Heart, the original novella that Clive Barker wrote, or was it the film itself? Like, I remember mine, but I wanted to hear about yours. I mean, I was really just into Barker in general. Like, I had... I don't remember, honestly, I, I sadly don't remember, like, where I, where I first heard of him. Um, I think I I think I just had heard of Hellraiser, like, Pinhead on the cover of, of, of a VHS, and... I was, I think it was like fourth or fifth grade. I just started like researching him more. I read Thief of, All, Thief of Always, which is his young adult, amazing, amazing book. L- Complete stunner. Just it's, and I reread it recently, and it's as an adult too, a fantastically like beautiful and like haunting book about like death and <laughs> and like for for a young adult book, it's pretty heavy. Um, and my parents were very against my obsession with him. I was kind of a gorehound from an early age. And so I was obviously obsessed with the idea of 
these, you know, monsters that tore people apart. Um, I saw Hellraiser three first. I was at a friend's house and uh, it was on HBO. Um, and when you're, when you're, you know, I think I was the same fifth grade era. Um, and I just loved it. I'm like, Oh my God, this is so fucked up. I didn't see Hellraiser one and two till a couple years later. I think honestly, like even high school for some reason. Um, but Barker in general was just like so part of my life. I was reading everything I get my hands on. I was reading the comic books, uh, the Hellraiser comic books and like his Nightbreed comic books uh, from Dark Horse. I think Dark Horse, anything I can get my hands on. Um, or the image, right? Or actually might have been like another imprint. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was my, my kind of way. But he was really important to me growing up. And he, preparing for this episode, I, it's awesome to kind of go back to that um, and just remember like how influential he was on me in terms of like what I was into and like what kind of horror I liked and what I wanted to write myself. This was another one that I saw on the local station I've referenced here on several episodes when talking about horror movies is that it was another like Sunday afternoon special where they would play like three to four horror movies in a row and Hellraiser was one of them. And I will never forget it's still burned into my brain as an almost 40 you know, year old adult man is that it was the coming up next like mini commercial that they showed. And it was the scene where the engineer is like chasing Kirsty down that hallway. And it, that was the blip that they, or the blurb that they showed like in the, the, the coming up next kind of or coming attraction, like trailer that they had for the next program on the feature. And I was like, what the fuck is that? So I, I just stayed in my parents' room at like two or three in the afternoon while they were doing like lawn work or something and just watched Hellraiser broad daylight and it scared the fuck out of me. I should say that like Hellraiser to this day is still one of the few horror movies that keeps me up at night. Like I rewatched a bunch of them. Uh, for this episode, and it's specifically one and two, more one than two, because I think once we get into the fantastical elements of two, that uh, diffuses a little bit of the the frightening elements, let's say. But like Hellraiser 1, the OG, still, I watch it, again, as almost a 40-year-old man, and I like wake up in the middle of the night like checking the door and shit to see if like Pinhead is standing there with the box or chains in the fucking like doorway, because I just think there's some of the scariest monsters uh, ever committed to film and also the intertwining of sex and death and flesh and pain and pleasure like I don't think my young brain because I was kind of around the same age as you like maybe like fourth or fifth grade when I first saw this movie is that like I had never seen anything like that like up until this point like horror was like evil guy with a mask and a knife chasing hot women through, you know, the suburbs or, or the woods or a camp or whatever. And like, that's what was scary. Maybe the leprechaun movies or something, but it was all like good versus either evil. Here's your monster. This is why they're scary. And like with Hellraiser is almost like, Oh, the monsters actually like really frankly get off on what they're doing. And like the protagonists of the story, they're not a whole lot different. Like they find just as much pleasure in the pain that's being inflicted. And like that sort of warped my brain going forward with how I kind of approached any kind of horror fiction. Yeah. It's, um, what's really cool about 
about Barker and, and I have this book in front of me right now. It's Clive Barker's Shadows of Eden from the from like the late eighties and it was it's a collection of interviews and, and um amazing articles about basically his rise to fame because he kind of came from nowhere in the mid-80s with the book's blood and from the theater scene uh, in London with his kind of Grand Guignol um, plays he'd been producing. There's a bunch of really cool like criticism in there too. Like there's a Joe Bob Briggs essay and stuff too. Like Kim Newman's in there. Like it's a, you found this at a thrift store? No, I got, I got on thrift books. Oh, okay. And I, this was, this was from, it was really cool because this book is really, I, I felt very nostalgic this week reading it. Because this was at the library, Franklin Community Library in Franklin, Indiana, where I grew up. And I couldn't, my parents wouldn't let me check it out. But every time we went, I'd snuck over and like, we'd just spend 20 minutes like leafing through as quickly as I could. Like, there's great pictures in here. And it was this way to like experience Barker without getting caught. Um, But he talks very explicitly about his relationship with monsters and that um, I won't read the exact quote, but it's the idea that. Monsters are not this this outer thing where they're to be defeated and everything goes back to the status quo. That they're they are representations of us. They are things that shake us to our core in a very much Lovecraftian way. It's like once you're once you see the depth of what is actually out there, um, then you're changed forever. But also, like you said, with the Hellraiser films, you have like you know Frank and Julia in particular, who are these kind of deplorable people, but they're kind of also like us people who have vices, mm-hmm. you know, people who are at the whim of their own sexual desires. I mean, Julia, the reason she wants Frank is he's a good fuck. Like that's all it is. It's like she had the best sex of her life. Like they have this obviously very animal connection to one another. And that once she had him, you have Rory in the book is, but the, the, the dad figure, she's like, I've had none better. I'll basically call a guy up from fucking hell and help feed to his, give me that good dick. To give me that good dick again. I mean, for real. Like, that's what it is. But it, you know, I think that Barker, I mean, his stuff is all like very, very sexual, like you said. Um, but in there's times where I'm like, okay, that's not me. Like, I'm so, I feel like you joke when we were watching one of the films, like, I'm so vanilla compared to this, and I'm the same way. But yeah, I, the Hellraiser <laughs> movies are like one of the greatest arguments to just sort of enjoying a vanilla sex life is you're like, I'm good. Yeah. Like maybe some doggy style every now and again, but once the whips and chains and hooks come into play, count me out, brother. Exactly. And but it's still it's on you know on that spectrum of like especially when you think of like when you're when I was still reading Barker, I was a teenager, when your hormones are really fucking firing and you're like, do I'll do anything to see a boob. And you watch these movies like, wow, like I guess I take a lifetime of, of, you know, pain to also have a little bit of pleasure. Like it just, there's some interesting stuff about, you know, about addiction, but also about um, just our own human, human desires. Well, when did you discover that he would, did you know he was an author first before you watched the movies? Because I, I read the stuff after I saw Hellraiser because, and I can't even, it, for the life of me recall how I discovered that Clive Barker, the guy who wrote and directed this crazy movie, I watched it like two in the afternoon on my parents' television, actually wrote books that it was based after. Maybe it was like the blurb on the back of a VHS, or maybe it was that infamous uh, Stephen King quote on like the front of the VHS that was like, I've seen the face of horror. The or future the new, of horror. The future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Yeah, exactly. Like, I wonder if that's what, like... 
got me to seek out his actual writing because then I would go to Walden Books in the mall and buy a bunch of his stuff. Remember Walden Books? Oh, yeah. Uh, but like I bought The Hellbound Heart, the original of, uh, novella, um, The Great and Secret Show, uh, The Books of Blood, like short stories. Like I devoured all of those and his writing I found was even more disturbing than his filmmaking because you referenced Lovecraft. Like one of the coolest things about the Hellbound Heart is that intro with Frank, which is kind of condensed into almost like maybe like two minutes of the movie. But like when he first solves the lament configuration, you know, it has this long passage about how he feels like every sensation that he's ever experienced throughout his entire life from like birth to, to feeding at his mother's breast to like shitting himself to coming to all this stuff. But it washes over him all at once. And the way Barker uses language is very Lovecraftian because it becomes like a color out of space moment and how it's so overwhelming that like before the Cenobites even come in and start tearing him to pieces, like he's so like paralyzed by, by these sensations that I, I remember even reading it as like a 12 or 13 year old and being like, Oh my God, like this guy's on a whole other like intellectual level than like, you know, I loved Stephen King and Firestarter and Cujo and all of those, but this was just a total, like, different style of uh, horror authorship, let's say. Yeah, it's, um, because I, I kind of came to Lovecraft through Barker. You That's know, fair. I think I did, too. Because I'd heard of Lovecraft for years, and I, it, to be honest, I was like, oh, it just sounds kind of old. And I knew it had been written, like, a long time ago, and I think I was at that age where I was like, ah, oh, it just sounds like it's going to be fuddy-duddy or whatever. Now I quite... I really like Lovecraft. I just did a Lovecraft tour in, in Providence, um, which was, was awesome. Um, but yeah, that kind of like, I was just looking at another quote in here too, where he's basically saying exactly that. It's like, you know, when you are looking at, it's almost like, like Lovecraft, not even evil. It's almost like, almost like a, the indifference of, of a God, you know, it's like basically a God and an ant. You know, we are ants to them, where it's like we can't even comprehend just the universe. The it's universe, like knowing it's just, the void itself, and how like the old like what is that Nietzschean yeah. quote of like you stare into the void long enough and it begins to stare back at you. Like Barker really believes in that. Yeah, and but he also like finds a beauty in it too. I think it's what really makes his stuff so so transgressive. Is that oh god, yeah, it. it it also like this sounds kind of cheesy, but just like puts the mirror back at the reader of just, again like our our own human frailty, and it's not this easy d destruction of this monster. Even if the monster wins in a Stephen King book, like I don't have rarely have I felt in those like oh man, like I feel I, I'm worried for humanity. Like it doesn't shake me to my core, you know, even someone like Pennywise where it's like, okay, the kids represent good. It's this very like, like the Knights of the Round Table versus this evil. And Barker's is much more like, like you said, the, the human characters in all his stuff are there. I mean, the damnation game has it too. You'll, you'll get to this when you read cold heart Canyon. I know you're going to start with that. Also has a character who's just like a full on hedonist, like, that there's again or cabal or ca absolutely you know which yeah. would turn into nightbreed that he would direct himself but like the lead boon of that story 
he's like convinced that he's already kind of like on the edge, let's say, and uh, he's going to Deckard, his psychiatrist, the psycho Deckard, played by the awesome David Cronenberg Fuck in the yeah. movie. One of the best parts of that very flawed film. Um, but like he's a dude who's like super on the edge and is on the edge enough that Deckard's able to convince him that he's straight up like a serial killer. And like, that means that guy was broken enough to that point that Deckard is able to like pinpoint him and be like, Oh, here's the guy. He's the guy I can pin all my shit on because his mind's already so fucking frazzled that I can kind of just like incept him a little bit. So like Barker really loves, and I wonder, I guess we should just get into this now about like how much of a broken human being that Barker kind of became throughout time or that we learned that he was because like, as I joked while we were watching one of these movies, these are written by basically a Cenobite. Like Clive Barker himself is a Cenobite. He loves S and M he's into drugs. There were a lot of uh, weird accusations, let's say about Mm -hmm. him when it came to his diagnosis with with AIDS and how he might've knowingly like pass it on to some of his partners because he was just so hedonistic and kind of addicted to that sexual lifestyle and everything. And again, you don't want to cast aspersions on a guy when you don't know the full story, but there's enough accusations and kind of like proof in the pudding. And when you match it with the guy's art, like he was clearly working out some of his own kinks on the page to the most horrific degree possible. Yeah. It's, I think back to my parents and them not wanting me to read his stuff and I should not have been reading his stuff um, at, you know, in fifth grade. Um, You've always, yes. I mean, his young adult stuff like that and and Aberrat are all like very like kid friendly. Um, They got dark stuff, but it's like, it's, there's none of that other (laughs) sexual undertones, but you talking about Nightbreed also brings up another thing that I love about Barker as a novelist and a filmmaker is, something I I try to use for my own scripts is like levels of horror. Like the deeper you get, it's he, you're, you're talking about early his imagination. Like he has this very wild imagination. And so with Nightbreed, you have almost like two separate horror, uh, horror um, segments or horror like elements. You have one with just concepts, concepts, right. Or yeah, yeah. What's, what's the pitch, right? One pitch is like the serial killer pitch of imagine your psychiatrist convincing you because he has you on tape, he does murders in the style of what your fantasies are and then blames it on you. That's a great fucking pitch for a horror movie. Done. Then you have a whole thing about Midian, and this place where the monsters live, and you jam those together. Same thing with Hellbound Heart with Hellraiser. Imagine um, your husband cuts his hand and blood drops on the ground, and you realize that your husband's lost uh, crazy, or basically super horny brother is living in the floorboards waiting to come back from hell. You're like, oh, cool. Oh, also, there's a dimension with BDSM hell priests <laughs> travel through <laughs> dimensions who are chasing him. But that one's so close because it's like the idea of like, well, what's coming behind Frank? And that's so great because Frank is, he's as scary as the Cenobites. He's pretty fucking evil. Like he's terrible. He's, you know, a bag of skin or he's a bag of just like guts. And I, I love that about Barker. The Cenobites almost become a device to get rid of Frank. Exactly. Like, like Especially a literary in that one. device. And let's talk about this uh, because we kind of were, were discussing off mic the progression of Clive Barker's uh, directorial work is that 
he almost like Hellraiser itself is sort of a miracle because like it was made for not that much money. Like what? It was a million one and a half. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A million dollars. Like, like he said 900,000, I think. Yeah. So, and he makes this movie and he, if you read the Hellbound heart, which I did, uh, I revisited it for this recording. Mm-hmm. Me too. It almost reads like a script treatment. Like it's, pretty one-to-one to what the film would turn out to be, or at least you could see like the, the, the seeds of the idea that like he might not have had the money to realize in the movie, but that's kind of good is that the limitations made Hellraiser so amazing from like a storytelling uh, standpoint, because again, he's released by new world pictures, mm-hmm. uh, Roger Corman's second or third company at this point. Cause he worked for AIP and then he kind of forms this later in like the, the late eighties, early nineties mm-hmm. and puts this out. And then you can see that it, it, his imagination is almost a perfect fit for the age old Roger Corman rule of something has to happen every 10 minutes because it seems like in Hellraiser, there's a narrative turn every 10 minutes to where it's all of a sudden it's like, it begins with this weird, like here's this guy in this room and he solves this thing. And then here's these fucking demons that come out of nowhere and rip his face off. And they're doing his face like a puzzle. And then all of a sudden there's this family moving into this house. And then there's this blood. And then there's this great stop motion, like monster that comes out of the floorboards. And then all of a sudden it becomes Julia's the protagonist. And that's the other thing I want to talk about is that a lot of people like, online particularly wrongly peg Kirstie as the protagonist of Hellraiser. Agreed. It is Julia. Julia is the main character and that's what makes it so much scarier. Kirstie's part two. Yeah, she's the she's the final girl. Yeah, exactly. She becomes the tertiary like protagonist who has to take over once Julia is too far gone, you know, but then all of a sudden Julia realizes that this great Dick is just living in the (laughs) attic. And he's like, you know what? How do you bring this Dick back? Bring me like weird chud dudes to come back and try and fuck you. And I'm just going to kill them and like absorb their life force. Cool. That's awesome. And then we realize that, this puzzle box could also bring back these demons again and that they're seeking Frank out. And you're just like, what the fuck? It's like a miracle of narrative, like engineering around budgetary limitations. Like it's just cause it, it, in essence, it's almost like a James Whale movie. It's an old dark house film, but it just, like you said, it builds, it's almost its own puzzle box to where like you unlock one thing every 10 minutes and then something else happens and it just adds to another layer of horror to where by the end, it becomes this Lovecraftian monster movie where like things are coming out of the void to like tear all of these characters apart. And by the end, barely anybody is standing. It's in fucking credible. No, I, I agree because that, you know, it came after, um, and very well put, by the way, I thought that's, that's all like, I totally agree of it's just the perfect size canvas for where he was. And honestly, the best size canvas for him in his entire career. Um, you know, he comes off two adaptations of his work. Well, he wrote the script for underworld, which was based on nothing. Um, and then the next year they made raw head Rex based on a, one of his short stories from books of blood, both directed by George Pavlo. Um, and, Famously, he hated both of them, and and we watched Underworld, which I we both never seen. Um, right, hard to find, really hard to find, which I kind of enjoyed. Um, it's like, fun. It's like I think I called it Diet Coke Tony Scott. Like it's totally operating in that weird neon that hunger, like vibe hunger world. 
Yeah, and it's got like this kind of almost cyberpunk like costuming. So it kind of looks Blade Runner in moments. It's yeah. like that kind of like that almost like synth era of like of like Soho. You know, this whole this whole thing is and it's so it's super cool and it's definitely an artifact. Rawhead Rex rewatched it is a mess. Um and Rawhead Rex is just like the goofiest looking monster and and that's what, you know, he talks about in this book um quite <laughs> candidly of just like how his vision was not there on the screen at all. And which, okay. Yes. And no, like you can see again, the limitations and like Barker. One of the cool things about Hellraiser two is that it almost feels like despite him not fully knowing how to direct a movie, maybe because he'd made a couple short films up to that point. Cause he yeah, made the avant-garde stuff, yeah, avant-garde, like under, underground, like 16 millimeter shit. But I mean, like you could see that he knew how to compose a shot. He knew like his, the design of it is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Like the design of that house, the performances are actually pretty fucking good, especially Mm -hmm. from a a horror film of that like budgetary level. They're all his theater friends. Oh yeah. They're all Mm -hmm. of his theater buddies. He creates a straight up icon with Doug Bradley and pinhead. Um, But like with underworld, we were kind of commenting as we watched it. Like it almost feels like the LA takedown to heat. Yeah. Like it's like for the, Nightbreed. Yeah. It's the dry run to Nightbreed. Is that like, it's all kind of there. It's like, you have these underground mutants that are coming after people. There are these weird scientists doing experiments. There's a war that's going on. There's uh gangsters and stuff. And it's kind of like how like you could see him plucking the details out because this is before Cabal is written too, right? That was 88. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like he hasn't even written the story that Nightbreed's based on yet. So like, yes, it might not be his full vision, but like the elements are certainly there. That that's fair. And, and I think that it it is interesting. Like you said with Hellbound heart that he kind of, from reading this book, like, He's like, I want to do my own thing. And it was just like, well, how about this? Like it was, it was like, like the, the size, the length was perfect. It was limited, um, limited in scope that he could really put everything into it. Um, and it, it's, it was just the perfect time and place. And as you were saying off mic, I don't want to steal, you know, steal your idea, but like, again, it's like, as the canvas got bigger, the cracks started to show. Yeah. And also the, the focus started to drift, especially you see that with Nightbreed, right? That like. It's all over the place. I mean, those we, we talked about the, the, the disparate elements of the serial killer and the Midian thing, and it doesn't quite come together narratively. It's kind of it just bounces in themes, and he's trying to say too much with one film. Well, his imagination is so expansive that it's almost like he needs bumper guards yeah. on that 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 bowling alley, let's say, because like if he doesn't, he's just throwing gutter balls the whole time left and right because like he can't keep himself on track. Like the original pitch for Nightbreed was I'm going to make the Star Wars of horror. And it's like, cool, Clive, that's awesome. But like can we like main like streamline this a little bit? Because one of the great things, you know, you can pitch the Star Wars of horror, but the reason that fucking Star Wars is Star Wars is because George Lucas again was working with no money. Like he wasn't like some expansive like blockbuster filmmaker being backed by a studio at this point. I mean there's the famous story about De Palma basically being like what the fuck is happening in this movie? We've got sand wizards and and Jedis and this and that, and then writing the crawl just to basically form a coherent 
uh, story to Star Wars itself. Like, it's almost like Barker needed his own De Palma to kind of rein him in, and that's what helped with Hellraiser is that he had to work within these guidelines. I think the one that's actually more successful than I ever gave it credit for and we rewatched together again was Lord of Illusions. Mm -hmm. I think Lord of Illusions is the closest to capturing that kind of gothy sex magic vibe of his books the best because it's got the neo-noir stuff with uh, Harry Damore. It's got the magicians. It's got the weird cult leader out in the desert. Like you can actually see it on the page. And at that point, like he's refined a very particular visual aesthetic for himself too, where he's, he's envisioning all of these crazy paintings and stuff that he was known for onto the screen. Like, and I feel like Lord of the, of illusions is the one it's almost like he learned a lesson on Nightbreed when it was taken away from him by the studio and kind of hacked to pieces that it was like, okay, I still at least got to like give them an A to B to C storyline in order for this to be successful. And Lord of Illusions, in my opinion at least, is a much better movie than Nightbreed, despite all of Nightbreed's insane ambitions. I, I totally agree. Um, my favorite Barker film is Lord of Illusions. Um, I love the world of Hellraiser more and, and like just the mythology, but I love the, like you said, the neo-noir, the kind of like private eye plot. I also love anything with like an old evil coming back. I think the intro is fucking amazing where Swan and his group go to, to kill Nyx. Oh man, it's so good. It's just the coolest, coolest, like cold open to um, one of my honestly period. Like again, it's another thing I tried to steal from my own stuff. Imagine like 20 years ago, like the pitch is so strong of, and that's why I think this one works too better than Nightbreed. Because Nightbreed is like, imagine a world with monsters. It's more like a fairy tale. So it's very much more um, abstract in terms of like, what's the point? And dreamlike and, too. It, very dreamlike, right? And and this one, like that's almost like Alice in Wonderland, you know, of like, just let your brain run wild. And this one is like, like like you said, kind of married to the the detective plot, you know, with what he's solving is this, this um, more fantastical mystery. But I love that the pitch of like, imagine if David Copperfield had basically killed, <laughs> had killed his magician master in the desert and then fucking buried him and then took his power and is now the richest fucking magician in the world. Like, that's the pitch. Yeah, like and David Blaine actually does magic. It, exactly. And that's really, really cool. And like you said, the A to B to C plot is it's just so much more structured. I think he probably just became a better screenwriter too. Sure. Uh, because like, the screenplay for Hellraiser is not great by screenplay standards, but like you said, it works perfectly for what they were doing of reveal, 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 the onion being peeled back until the, the final scene. That's not Lord of Illusions. Like Lord of Illusions is just like detective plot, well put together. Um, and like some, like you said, some great horror imagery because he gets to do his thing, like I mean, I think Nick's is a great villain. Besides the fact we we're both laughing, that I always think of um, Seinfeld. He's Mr. Kruger, Mr. Kruger, or I think of you know he's the the eye patched uh, sergeant from uh, Malcolm in the Middle, or his brother's in military school, and I, I mean, he seems like this really funny guy. But I think he's actually a terrifying villain, and that the design of the mask um, that like is put on his face to kind of bind him from using his magic is looks like one of Barker's sketches. You see, so again, his just like the, all the elements there. Um, 
which are it's just I just I think it's one of the things I love about him his is his artistic bent, you know, his painterly bent. Sure, and I think to to go along with your idea of like you know, the fantastical elements of Lord of Illusions being married to a neo-noir plot that we kind of understand the mechanics of just inherently almost. It's also tied to a reality that we comprehend just in terms of the villainy because, like, Nyx is essentially, like, Jim Jones if Jim Jones could do magic or Manson or any of those insane cult leaders, Heaven's Gate, any of that stuff. They're analogs for us, Like, he takes them out into the desert and it's like, oh, no, but what if those people weren't fucking nuts? Like, the same way that, like, what if David Copperfield was a real magician? It's like, what if Charles Manson could was actually, like, an apocalyptic figure that wasn't full of shit the entire time and just a total egomaniac? Like, he really was the harbinger of the apocalypse who could open up hell. That's a neat idea, you know? And it's just a total what-if scenario that Barker comes up with and then spins again into his own kind of, like, expansive sense of mythology. And that's what makes... Lord of Illusion so rewatchable is that you you can connect to both and just kind of fall into that world because it somewhat resembles our own. Yeah, yeah. And he you know, he's as a writer too, he's he's somewhat similar to King and that they both really strive in short stories that a lot of the best Stephen King adaptations have been based on short stories because they're more manageable. But King, like Barker, is um he overwrites, you know, and so a lot of his books are a thousand pages long. So either has to be a really, you know, expensive mini series or you got to cut a lot out and find that, you know, like there's the reason you haven't ever seen the great and secret show as a film. It would have to be like a three season fucking HBO series. Yeah. That would be stretched to six seasons on Netflix or whatever. We're like, Five episodes a season would be nothing but filler. Yeah, I mean, Galilee is like really in depth, like family almost drama. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? But, like, you know, I've always preferred his short stories because, like you're saying about Hellraiser, they're limited. Um, and, like, he has to just kind of stick to the pitch. And, like, with Lord of Illusions, it's like, all right, I like your, I like what you're saying about we know where he's taking us in terms of, okay, detective plot, like, here's the beats of this. You know, we know that, like, but we don't really know how it's going to play out. Um, and I think he became a better, I think he became a better director too, because he handles the, like the action scenes. Well, right in that movie. And the horror is like really effective um, and pretty disturbing. The end, the end scene is really the, 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 the climax I think is awesome. Like the imagery of like when the people get sucked into the mud, his followers, it's and they incredible. kind of crust over. It's just really good horror imagery. Well, and his background with theater, too, kind of explains why he's able to get performances that are a kind of a cut above most genre films, too, is that he's clearly a guy who can get an emotional performance out of a performer even if they're in the most fantastical scenario possible, if that makes sense. Like he still roots them in an emotional truth, which is what every theater director is supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, he um, and he he says like in some interviews like his first kind of for, foray into like extreme theater was Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare stuff is all like super fucking gory and super. You know, it's like you he think, didn't do Titus Andronicus, did he? I don't think so. I don't think he produced a lot of Shakespeare. Most of his stuff was original. God, imagine a Barker Titus Andronicus. Oh my god! I just threw that out into the ether. Oh, that would be be amazing but he was also known for like really not just pushing the gore but that one of his plays like they sink a boat on stage 
like really elaborate, like the like kind of stagecraft that like real Herzog shit, like really like yeah, very, very much like what the fuck. Um, but he also like he he talks about that like his first love was was actually fantasy and fairy tales. Like Peter Pan is when he really got into the idea of like alternate worlds and these dream worlds. And it makes a lot of sense because that's much more Nightbreed. And you you look at his more fantasy stuff like Aberat, that whole series of just these really expansive, almost Narnia-like uh, worlds um, where your imagination can really run wild and where monsters can be your friend, almost in a Del Toro kind of way, like oh, Pan's sh- Labyrinth. Oh, 100%, because, I mean, that's all present in Nightbreed. Like, Nightbreed's kind of like the early blueprint without actually being one officially for Del Toro because yes. it, they share a lot of uh, similar fascinations. The idea of the monster representing the outsider, which kind of is doubled down to where like Del Toro is always using it for these people out operating outside of like fascism and everything mm-hmm. for Barker. It's gay people. It's queer people. Yeah. It's like, that's w- what he's always identified with is like people who lived outside of the margins because they lived differently from everybody else. And that's why he loved monsters. Like that's, you can see Del Toro really latching on to that uh, kind of aesthetic that Barker laid out. And you wonder if Del Toro is like a massive Nightbreed fan. I would be shocked if he wasn't, you know, even in its like flawed iterations yeah. that we have, he probably found something to cling to in those movies, but led to get it back to Hellraiser. You can kind of see his fantastical bent, even in the first sequel, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, because it dives much deeper into the mythology. And honestly, for like half the movie, just spends it in hell or like Leviathan. Leviathan with the Leviathan and like all of the monsters and the huge labyrinth and everything. And again, this is where you start to see the seams or at least the limitations of Barker's vision. This one isn't directed by him. It's directed by a guy named Tony Randall, who's he's made a few movies, but I mostly know him as the director of ticks. The, I uh, love ticks and it's great. It's super splattery as well in this movie. I mean, Hellbound Hellraiser two is really fucking gross to take it back to that mattress. But like, uh, Hellraiser 2 has a lot of Alice in Wonderland undertones yep. and stuff. Especially about, that blonde girl. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going into the underworld, seeking out, like, you know, a companion, trying to find the truth in it and everything, and having to be rescued by, like, a protector. Meanwhile, like, Chenard is one of the great, uh, kind of Clive Barker villains because he, like Frank, is a guy who's just seeking out experience beyond what the flesh has to offer and then kind of becomes the series closest analog to Freddy Krueger. I love Chenard so fucking much. I love the stop motion, like, uh, it's awesome. those, like those tendrils that have the, like the razors that come out of the ends and the eyes, like totally, it's almost like from labyrinth, you know, it's bananas. Um, there's also like a theme in this, of that runs throughout all of Barker and a lot of good horror fiction is like knowledge is not always a good thing. Like, you know, the more, you know, can be actually more dangerous and that's Chenard through and through. I mean, I love, I love his, um, well, there's also the question of why do you want to know this? Right. You know, and, and a lot of like, like Chenard has no regard for his patients. Like he's using them for his own experiments, um, to try to open these boxes or, you know, or to, um, 
or to, you know, bring back Julia from the mattress and that really fucked up scene. Um, but it's got a, it's got a really a cool message of like, just don't, don't go too deep, you know, and this is what you'll find. But I think, yeah, Chenard is, he's a great addition too, because, you know, you read the Scarlet Gospels and it gets much more into um, power plays in hell. And like, there are like levels of, and which, which I, one of the things I like about Scarlet Gospels is like, in that more like fantasy level of like, oh no, like there are bosses, there are followers, there are like different factions of people versus one another. And you get a little bit of this in, in Hellbound where, you have like Pinhead on one side, you have Julia over here, who's kind of with Shenard, but not, you know, then you have the idea of just a straight up Leviathan, this evil place. And cursed well, Leviathan's he, the god, right? That that hangs over all of it. It's and, I, mean, I think it is like, yeah, it's like the box, the version of the box, the the giant kind of, you know, pointy thing in the sky. But also I think I think the place is called Leviathan, from my understanding. Okay. Uh I may be I may be wrong about that, but it gets much more complicated with like the mythology of like people backstabbing each other, even in, <laughs> in hell, you know, and the monsters again are more interesting. And Kirstie's kind of running around trying to just find her dad and find the girl. Like that's her main, her main purpose. Well, and you referenced the Scarlet gospels because that was the book that Clive Barker wrote in like 2015. That was his attempt at reclaiming the series and the characters. I mean, the intro to that book is basically a, a total fuck you to anybody who ever called Pinhead Pinhead. Like he, it's basically Barker being like, I didn't give him that name. He's the hell priest to me. But like, because after Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, like these movies go to dimension films with Bob and Harvey Weinstein and become kind of generic franchise horror fodder. And I know a lot of people ride hard for Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, but I tried again, and this will be the last time I ever watch this movie because I still think it fucking sucks. I I did not watch it for this episode, but I did watch it last year, so I didn't. I, I had just seen it. I don't ride hard for it. I still like three. It was the first one I saw, so nostalgia plays a big part. Um, I think it's funny that you could see, like you said, like it's very going Freddy Krueger with it. Um, with with Pinhead, he's definitely goofier in that one. He's more quippy, and also just the idea that no, the the stupid conceit of how you die makes you a Cenobite. So like a guy gets a camera shoved in his head, a DJ gets CDs in his head, and he comes back as CD head. It's there's really, a bartender Cenobite who just throws like Molotov cocktails at people. And that's, that was the point where I was like, I'm out, I'm done with this. And it's, it's funny because you can just, you could see the conversation in the boardroom of like, how do you make this more like Freddie? How do you make this more franchisable? And this is this, this we need Cenobite action figures. Yeah, exactly. And like, I find it funny. Um, I think bloodline for all its production woes goes is a little bit, more we got to talk about bloodline in barkers you know i love everything i love adam scott playing you know uh this like marquis de sade like character uh well he's the apprentice right the apprentice to sad yeah yeah he's the little fuck boy yes and but there's another character like julia who angelique Mm-hmm. Um, who is also this kind of evil, evil woman who has ulterior motives. You get to see how uh, Le Marchand, right, m- you know, makes 
makes the box just super fucking cool. I love all that backstory. And it was made, it was the one film directed by Kevin Yeager, um, who has my wall right there. I got to interview super cool guy, the creator of the Chucky doll and uh, a lot of worked on many of the Freddie movies, uh, Bill great and, makeup and, um, and effects artist. And one of the coolest fucking guys, best, probably the best interview I ever had with any kind of like horror celebrity or icon. And I did not bring up bloodline. I figured why pour salt in the wound. And it now has an Alan Smithy film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a mess, but like there are bigger messes out there. It feels kind of like a Charles band film. Yeah. Because yeah. We, you didn't even re, like remark upon the fact that in all the stuff you just laid out, it's also set in fucking space. <laughs> like there, and it ends with the dude basically revealing spoilers, I guess, for those of you who have never seen Bloodline, that the spaceship they're on is a giant lament configuration. Trap trap that's supposed to close the gateway to hell off forever there's cenobite dogs in it there's one where two like cenobites like like two heads are are combined that one's actually pretty i like that one a lot but i like bloodline a good deal because Mm -hmm. you can see the same level of ambition and what they were trying to do and kind of all the stuff that you described were like the most i can cling to in hellraiser 3 is it has the hottest chicks so like and there's, Paula Marshall. Oh, good lord! Hachi Machi. Yeah, man. <laughs> my, my god, girl yeah, yeah. fantasy for the rest of my life. They're like terrifier hot. Oh yeah, but I mean like Hellbound, Hellraiser, or not Hellbound? Uh, Bloodline. Bloodline. Like, so I have a story about Bloodline too. Is that I actually was one of the few people ever who saw this movie in a theater. I tried to get my dad to take me. He wouldn't. I bought a ticket with my buddy Adam to uh, Down Periscope, the Kelsey <laughs> 96, Grammer, yep. yeah, uh, <laughs> comedy. And then we snuck in with his super hot sister uh, to Hellraiser Bloodline. We watched it. At the time, even as a kid, I was like, oh, this isn't very good. And then my parents found out that I got that I snuck in. I got so fucking grounded for like two weeks because of that movie. But like, so I guess I have like a little bit of nostalgia for it. But even revisiting as an adult, I like the chintziness of it. Mm-hmm. I like the ambition of it. I like that it feels like the Charles Band Hellraiser. And like, there's nothing after it really except for maybe the Scott Derrickson movie Inferno that's any good because from here it just becomes DTV shelf stuffers because uh, Bob and Harvey Weinstein more or less banned Clive Barker from having any kind of fucking input in the series at all which ends up resulting in uh, the Scarlet Gospels because after Bloodlines there's some mild research out there that you can find and also I think What's his name? Peter Atkins Mm -hmm. is the one screenwriter. Actually, you can find like his script treatments and stuff for uh, the movie that would have been Hellraiser 5 after that to where there was going to be a huge like epic one where they bring Kirstie back. It's set in London, like the, the more of a hell on earth kind of thing. Yeah. Ration brings like hell on earth to London and it's like a huge final apocalyptic battle and yada, yada, yada. And Bob and Harvey Weinstead, Weinstein were basically like, we're not paying for that shit. Fuck you. We're just like making like $500,000 like TV movies. Barker blew up at them and they like banned him from making Hellraiser movies with uh, Miramax and Dimension ever again. Fuck you again, Weinsteins. But 
that's what results in uh, Scarlet Gospels because Scarlet Gospels, which he worked on for a long, long time, because I remember even in the earliest days of the internet, like seeing pictures of like the, the, the most rough of drafts that he was working on were like seven to 800 pages of nothing but like notes and sketches and everything of what this uh, epic novel was going to be. And it ends up being about 465 pages, but it is like Harry Damore, like travels to hell from Lord of Illusions. From Lord of yeah, the the protagonist from Lord of Illusions, Scott Bakula forever baby, travels to hell to stop Pinhead from leading a revolution in hell and basically becoming more or less like the next iteration of Lucifer in Lucifer's absence. And it's sort of like if you were to take all of the Dark Tower novels, like Clive Barker's versions of them, and condense them into one novel, because you want to talk about a thing where like something happens like every five pages, for as epic and weird and dorky and out of its mind as the Scarlet Gospels is, like it moves at a clip. It's a real like beach read page turner because you're like, and part of that is because you're just marveling the whole time, like holy fucking shit. Did cocaine become sentient? Find the Lord of the Rings and then write this book because <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah, because like his other books, we've talked before. I mean, are, are much longer and they're much more like loquacious, right? Like they right. They, they are have a different pace. There's a lot of good horror, but it's much more baroque and there's a lot more character, a lot more sex. Even not horror sex, just straight up sex. And like Great and Secret Show has the whole. Uh, like it's like the second act of the book is a, what is it the three virgins that it's a, the the powers are rising up to try and claim and stuff too and they're experiencing sex for the first time it's been years since I read that yeah, album it's been a but while. that's one of the things that stuck out to me like but to your point like he was always dealing with the the carnal realities of the flesh he kind of reminds me also of like a hornier Neil Gaiman you know oh uh, for th- real these, these like really you know Gaiman spends more time um, also dealing with though like. Uh, classic literature and classic mythology and, and playing with that. You think about Sandman. It's like, oh, there's Lucifer. There's these characters. Now, while Lucifer is in Scarlet Gospels, usually Barker's creations are all completely original. Like he might he might reference other literature and classic literature and classic mythology, but it's more about creating his own worlds. You know, even if they're analogs, it's still like yeah. To your point, like Lucifer shows up, but I think that's the only biblical figure, yeah. except for the ending with God and shit when that happens, <laughs> which sucks. That's the only thing about Scarlet Gospels. I'll tell anybody who go, wants to like seek that out after they've listened to this episode. It's great until the final twenty pages. It's kind of like the stand where you're like, "What the fuck?" He didn't know how to wrap this up and just does it in the worst way possible, and you're just like, "Well." Well, at least the first 440 pages were good, but like it has that, it has so many of his great, weird, monstrous creations on the page. Like even when they're basically without saying it, like floating along on the river sticks to go find like Satan's giant, like obsidian tower that he's That's built. That's cool. Like there's that massive like centipede creature he calls like the Quadub or whatever that like rises out of the water and has like penises and like different like <laughs> monstrous like mouths oh, and oh, stuff. Clive. Yeah, Clive. Well, and that's the other thing too. It's like we're going to get to the, the the third part of this episode is going to cover the David Bruckner Hellraiser that just came out for Hulu. And one of the things that struck me about that movie was how 
not, there's not enough fucking in it. And I was reading Scar- Scarlet Gospels like simultaneously and it felt like every character had a secret sex dungeon at some point. Mm-hmm. It was just like, even the ghosts were like, I have a huge boner. And you're like, Clive, come on, man. <laughs> like, but it, it it's true. Like this guy just loved sex. He loves it. Yeah, my, my I always think of that line from, from Cabal where you're talking about Boone and she's, she's like, his cock had been pretty too. I'm like, awesome. Sure. I think I was like 13 reading that. I'm like, I, I, I didn't really know that he was gay for a while. You know, as you a, didn't? At, at a young age, I'm like, oh, and then I was like, oh, wait. And I think it was, that was the line. I looked it up and I was like, hmm. oh, it all makes sense. Now it all clicks into place. <laughs> and then you go back and you watch it. Um, <laughs> you, you watch his movies and like, you, you know how they talk about uh, with, horror films and everything with like the male gaze and the (laughs) male gaze. Like Clive has a different version of the male gaze to where like Craig Schaefer. Ooh, tiny whiteies with him. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of shirtless Scott Bakula in Lord of illusions. And you can tell that Clive Barker just has a type to where he's like, "Eh, yeah. <laughs> the Clark Parker sent a bite voice I had to come in. Well, I told you what happened when I met him that um, I, I was a Texas Frightmare and I walk in. He wanted to deflower Baby Boy Hunter. Uh, well, it was me. So Hunter is Hunter and I. We walk in. It's like a it's a, a photo op, and so you spend like it was like a hundred bucks, but it was definitely worth it because I was like I gotta meet this guy. And they rush you in. You sit down. Click. They rush you out. You and stay, and <laughs> he just he's sitting down and he was he was looking pretty pretty sick um and he just completely ogles me just like look you know look he goes you're tall like that and I'm like you're tall <laughs> he was actually very fucking nice though like he like he had a good he had a very good kind energy to him mm. like and, and ever he was uh, he I think. Compared to when I saw Tim Curry there, who had just had a stroke, and it was just like really sad because it was like they literally had propped him up for photos, and he wasn't really there. Um, he looked like the grandpa from Texas Chainsaw. It was it was bad, but this one felt more like Clive was like more present. And hey, he took his boner pills that yeah. day. And then he saw you, and he was like, mm, "There's some meat, baby." I think I asked Hunter, I was like, "Did Clive Barker want to fuck me?" He's like, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." Why'd you come say that? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to say hello to the engineer? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Sorry, Clive. (laughs) We know you're listening, but no, all of these impersonations are done with love. I do love you, Clive, for real. Thank you for, thank you for everything. I apologize for the voice. Where were we? I think we lost. We lost track. We completely lost. We lost the thread. All of the meaningful criticism that we were doing about Clive Barker's oh. work were lost as soon as the Cenobite voice came out. <laughs> we were talking about his like ogling of men in his films. The 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 male gaze t- turned toward his his actors. Yeah, and I mean, but that's what set him apart. Because here's the thing, and I don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot before we actually get into the Bruckner movie. But it's fair to say, spoiler alert, neither one of us liked it. Yeah. But it did get me into thinking about something, and maybe I'll hold off on this a little bit, but the specificity of voice to where something about the Bruckner film 
that that didn't sit quite well is that it felt like it was robbing it or the franchise or Barker's original work of what made it special, which was that kind of leering, perverse sexuality. And it's trading in for something much more safe. Um, that that Barker, that, that wasn't any part of his stock and trade ever. Like everything about Barker's work, even in the most fantastical stuff like Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions, they kind of feel like they're made by an unwell mind, which is a thing that we have kind of commented on time and again that we gravitate towards like it's a guy who's really working out his kinks and perversions on screen and is kind of not fully ashamed by them it's just like this is what defines me as an artist and when you rob something of something that specific you lose its energy let's say yeah, I mean, there's a quote here in this book about, you know, you cannot separate sexuality from my stories. And a takeaway that subtext is to not understand the story and what it's really trying to do. And, you know, yeah, I, I totally agree. We've had a couple films and episodes this season where we have, you know, um, The French New Extremity and, and Terrifier, which are all really transgressive films that are disturbing in their own ways. I would say Terrifier is more gross. Um, and French New Extremity is like so nihilistic and rocks you to your core. There's nihilism in Terrifier as well, but oh but, yeah, but yeah, but not in the, doesn't only really stick with you the same way martyrs does um, or, you know, trouble every day does. But I agree that I think that Hellraiser, and I don't think this steps on our next section too much. Um, the reason that nothing really worked well after Hellbound is the pitch for the world of Hellraiser is not transferable to other artists. It it That's is fair. it is a thing where it's so what makes it great is Clive. Um, I read a, a criticism of the new uh, Rings of Power series for for Prime, the Lord of the Rings series, which I watched a little bit and turned off. And one of the things, kind of the um, lob, the kind of the criticisms that have been lobbed at it is without Tolkien, without like a Tolkien plot, this is just fan fiction. This is just fan fiction because while it is taking elements from the Silmarillion and stuff, it is a completely new prequel plot about Galadriel. And they're saying without the genius of Tolkien, it's just going to be dumb because that's what made it great was his amount of research, his insane attention to detail, and also just his writing and like his the way that he puts stories together. I would say the same for Barker. You know, I think that. I am not that interested in the idea of, again, like making Pinhead a Freddy Krueger. And I think the new one falls into the same thing. I think the new one is a prettier version of um, Hell on Earth that doesn't get the source material, does not get why Hellraiser works, and does not translate it for a new audience because it's a safer version of a film. that. And I, I would say that even though some sexual taboos like kink shaming is um, not as much of an issue today as it was in 1987. And um, while there's still a long way to go for the gay community, they're much more accepted in, in, in popular culture, right? There's still stuff from Hellraiser that you're like, holy shit, like this is really transgressive. And the new one feels 
Vanilla. So, so vanilla. You know, and again, it's just like, oh, they're scary monsters. Like, that's about as deep as it gets. That's it. Well, and you wonder also why David Cronenberg was such a perfect person to cast inside of Nightbreed as a psychotic, a psychotic psychiatrist is that not only had nobody really thought of putting that guy in like a great kind of meaty acting role, but Cronenberg was another artist who dealt in sex and death. Like that was his mm-hmm. stock and trade like Barker. And you wonder if it was a meeting of two kindred spirits, despite how flawed that, that movie ended up being is that, you know, Cronenberg was a guy who was dealing in, you know, what was termed at some point as venereal horror, Yeah, you know? And you wonder if Clive Barker was watching his stuff and being like, this is my guy. Like, we should do something together because they were operating on the same kind of diseased wavelength. Yeah. Yeah, and they and they both have their own horror imagery. I mean, like like Del Toro, it goes in a very different direction with the more fairy tale, even more fairy tale than the most fairy tale of Barker. Um, these are these horror filmmakers who aren't just making scary stuff. Like they create these very recognizable worlds and they have very specific visual styles and also are just, especially with Cronenberg and, and Barker, truly shocking. I mean, there's stuff in Videodrome, I think is still a very terrifying film. Well, you want to talk about a very kinky movie too. You have body piercing right. and whips and chains. And like, again, it's, it's, the same universe that of pain and pleasure that Clive Barker is operating in. Exactly. Frank and Max are the same. Max is bored. He goes, I want something tough, something that will break through. You know, the idea is he's so bored with human experience and with also what's out there in video that he's like, Oh, it's another, it's samurai porn. Great. His thing is like, what's the next fucking thing? And that's Frank, too. It's a very, right? And then when you cross through that threshold, you can't go back. Well, and it's what happens when evil has an agenda, too. Yep. You want to get into the Bruckner movie? I'd love to. All right. talking about David Bruckner's Hellraiser reboot for Hulu. Martin, we kind of already spoiled this, but we're just going to dive headfirst into it. Neither one of us liked this movie. Why didn't we like it? Because we're both big Hellraiser dudes. Yeah. um, Well, you turned to me about 45 minutes in. We're watching it together. You're like, I'm bored. And And that was the first sign because I hadn't admitted it to myself yet because it starts off really strong. 
Um, I also like, I know David a little bit from living in Atlanta cause he was part of the, uh, the group that made the signal. And then he was the, he was the one guy of like the whole group of like kind of indie filmmakers there who we all knew was going to go places. And, you know, he made the amazing opening segment of VHS. Um, well, and it's and from the writers and him who did Nighthouse. Nighthouse. And they also wrote super dark times, which I like quite a bit. Oh, I didn't realize that they did super dark times. I love that movie. Yeah. It's awesome. And so I'm like, wow, there's a lot of elements here that, adding up to you know to this be should have been awesome this should have been amazing and i think the reason we kind of got to a little bit in the in the previous section is like it doesn't have clive even though he gave his blessing and gave notes it's it's sexless it's toothless it's safe um the the monsters are treated just as that as the separate thing um, it has missed opportunities about, you know, they create this interesting start of like, oh, this girl is an addict and she's, she's in a recovery, um, for, for drug addiction and, and alcoholism. And you're like, oh wow. Interesting. Like this girl who like is always looking for, to push the boundaries of, of human experience, she would be drawn to this. And it, the whole thing feels like really thin. Um, I don't like the designs of the Cenobites. Um, I don't like any of the characters. Um, the gore is kind of off screen most of the time, even if it does show the gore, it's not very, again, transgressive. Um, and the whole thing is just kind of like, meh, like it feels it's also two hours long. Yeah. Way, it's way really too long. And it, it reminds me a lot, um, while you're watching, it reminded me a lot of like what force awakens was in comparison to the, the prequel trilogy, where and this has happened a lot lately, where a film can come out after a string of bad films in a franchise or considered bad films that fans didn't like and make it look pretty, make it look serious, well shot, good special effects. And everyone's like, oh, that was great. Like it tricks these people. Like you were saying, we watch it. The bar has been lowered so far that people are like, oh, I think I love that. It's like, but did you out of context? Did you like that movie? Yeah, you know, it's like you know what I'm saying? After sitting through what, since ninety-two? Yeah. Six Weinstein movies, mm-hmm. and then a couple others that aren't even Weinstein. They're more or less like other filmmakers where Doug Bradley's not even involved, and they're kind of like really low budget fan fiction almost. I'm talking about like I think the last two. Um I think one of the reasons that I was really bored with it is that it tries to graft Hellraiser onto the current trend of misery horror, or I guess elevated horror, to where everything has to be about grief or trauma or whatever. And I mean, this does fit into the motif of Bruckner's best work, because I mean, that is what the Nighthouse is about. It's what the uh, ritual is also about. Which is great. Which is... a I wouldn't go as far as to call it great, but the Nighthouse was the movie that for me proved I was like, oh shit, this guy's got something. And he's a good director. The, Even this film is well directed. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing, is it's well put together. The the performances aren't bad, even though the characters are, are very paper thin. Um, but it's all about like like I don't know why I had to sit through another sad addiction movie with Cenobites in it. That was the the main question I kept asking myself is that I was like, if you're going to bring Hellraiser back, like why not just do fucking Hellraiser? Like it ha- doesn't have to be in a modern mold. Like the, the reason that uh, 
Hellraiser is so great is because it has a monster that you can kind of graft anything onto. You can kind of tell a universal tale through specificity. And this was kind of what I was getting at with the, the last segment is that last night I saw Pavement live. One of the greatest bands of the 90s. And one of the reasons I was sitting there listening to Pavement and they played for two hours. It was a two hour, like almost 30 song career spanning set at the Moody Theater. Absolutely fucking incredible. The, had, the new Moody? No, the old one. Oh, cool. We nice. had great seats right in the mezzanine, center stage. Like the sound was great. Malcolmist sounds like he, he did like as he was 20, you know, just the same exact thing. But I was sitting there about halfway through the set because it's not like I just throw on pavement all the time, you know? Like there are a very specific kind of vibe or mood that like if I'm in the mood for, like I'll, I'll listen to. I'll throw, I have a bunch of their records on vinyl. I'll throw it on the player. But what I realized, what I love about their music, and I think it's what I love about Barker, and I went through this also. I just recently rewatched uh, Dawn of the Dead, the original 78 Romero movie, but I watched the Argento cut of it. And one of the things that I realized watching that movie is that this film is so sound and so possesses the voice of its creator that it doesn't matter who cuts it. It's going to feel about the same. It's just going to have a different pace where like the Argento one's kind of like the more action-y one. You know, you have the can cut, which is the sprawling epic. You have the theatrical, which is a little more truncated, but they all feel like George Romero's Dawn of the Fucking Dead. They're all about consumerism. They're all about the end of the world. They're all about humanity facing the... Uh, let's say meaningless of their own existence, you know? And I felt the same way listening to pavement last night is that it was like, they're so specific to a time and place to where it's like, this is what early nineties indie rock sounded like. Like if I were to define any, like just use a specific example to define that era of music, I would put on Wowie Zowie or Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain and be like, this is what indie rock in the early 90s sounded like. Like they were the best at it. And I feel the same way about Barker's work for the same reason that we just kind of went through for the last hour is that like what defined Hellraiser was like he made these great monsters and you can graft anything onto them. Like Derrickson, uh, Scott Derrickson, who is a pretty good director, does that decently with his fan fiction-y uh, Inferno movie, uh, which basically becomes like Jacob's Ladder with Pinhead. Not a great film, but out of the DTV, like Weinstein movies, it's the best thing that we got, let's say. But like Barker's movies, like you throw them on and you go, Clive Barker made this, like... That's it. They have a certain feel. They have a certain sexuality. They have a certain like air of menace and perversion about them. And what Bruckner does with it is that he tries to graft the modern elevated representation first mode of filmmaking that we're currently in. And it like totally strips it of its specificity. Like it takes the monster away because instead of applying an idea, he applies a trend. And I mm, think there's a really difference well put, yeah. between the two, the two is that he's trying to update 
the Hellraiser and the Cenobites and the Lament configuration for an audience that doesn't want specificity anymore. They want something that's going to be as appealing across the board and frankly inoffensive across the board as humanly possible. And I think that's what strips this new Hellraiser of any kind of real meaning or impact because there's no specificity to it. Like we're entering an era of horror that reminds me a lot of the era of horror that came after Scream is that there was this dead zone following Scream to where like everybody started chasing the trend, the CW, Kevin Williamson, teenage melod or like YA melodrama yeah, with neo like slasher, slashers yeah. in it. And like, we look back at that era now, like there's a little bit of nostalgia for that now because like the people who lived through that are now adults and like, that's what they grew up with. But like when you were in that moment, that era of horror fucking sucked because there was nothing to it. It was all airy nothingness with like pretty people going through like these melodramas that you really didn't care too much about. And I feel like we're entering an era of horror now after the elevated horror and the French New Extremity and everything has kind of run out of gas completely to where we're almost in like a dead zone to where everything's gonna be stripped of specificity except for one thing and the other era that we're leaving too is the get out era the social horror era mm. to where like the only person who still should be legally allowed to make those movies is jordan peele because he's the only one i think that still has a thought left in his head that's worth fucking expressing in like the social horror arena is that now it's like how can we make these movies for this audience who's programmed to like like them because for lack of a better term, they're also sort of like critic proofed to a oh degree my God, dude. because of the representation stuff. Because the big thing that you see with people defending this new Hellraiser is because uh, the new pinhead is Jamie a Clayton. trans woman. Yep. Jer- Jamie Clayton is a trans woman. And that's great. I'm glad yeah. that somebody got to play that part. And she's great in Sense8. Like, she's a good actress. Yes, great actress, everything. I'm not knocking that at all, but it feels like we're placing the value of representation above specifically making a good horror movie. And now we're losing any kind of real scares entirely and we're drifting off into this kind of like nether world of like it's just content and it's just content meant to appease the most online of us like in the community and then the other end of this spectrum is the now like what i'm starting to call meme horror which is for the extremely online it's the malignant's the, the I don't know if you saw the trailer for the new Megan movie. I love that filmmaker though. He did he did Housebound. Right, but like it feels but like a movie the that's dance made is a, is to a be meme. cut into a gif or a meme. Yeah, you're right. And as much as I really like it, Barbarian kind of fits into this too. Yeah, to where they're movies made for people where they know when this hits streaming or the the trailer comes out or whatever, people are going to gift this or meme it into oblivion. And that's how it lives in the consciousness. It's not about how good the movie is. It's about how we talk about them now. And that's, I don't want to say dangerous because that that's a loaded word, but it's definitely a crippling 
kind of way to approach horrific storytelling or any kind of storytelling because i mean it's it's all it any kind of um filmmaking now i mean uh marvel has so codified mediocrity too that people are like the way i put it is people are like it's almost like McDonald's releases a new sandwich and everyone's like, isn't it great? Like that's, that's Marvel for me, right? Where it's like pumping out this stuff and it's like... We're programmed to accept table scraps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, scraps. And it's like, oh, I really... It's, you know, it's the same way I, I think of when I've, I've been to Disney World before, right? And everyone's wearing Disney shirts there. You know, these families with their kids or, you know, couples are going to get engaged. And they all have branded Disney shirts. But... They're all their style. So one is like, oh, I'm kind of like a, a rocker. So mine's like black with like silver on it. But it's all, and then one person's like, oh, I'm more of a classicist. So I have like a you know, 1940s like Minnie and Mickey. And it's like, everyone's like, that's my personality. But like through the lens of what Disney allows you to do. And I feel that same way where it's like, what's your favorite Coke flavor? What's your favorite fucking, you know, McDonald's item? And I feel like that's the same thing. Like, I mean, and again, this is Disney. Like Hellraiser is, it's, you know, it's. We're taught to incorporate brands into our personality now. To like yeah. How they express our personalities the best. Even coming down to like indie filmmaking. I remember the guys when Uncut Gems came out who thought really liking Uncut Gems was a great replacement for having a personality. Mm. Yeah. Like eight, everybody's like, you know, you hear terms like. It's like an A24 film, or it's like a neon film, or it's like elevated horror or whatever. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? They're just companies. Like, they're I, not I like, actual filmmakers. I like something more psychological is what people always say. Yeah. You know, it's like, what does that fucking mean to you? You know? And But I, I agree. Like, I think we have been, a lot of us, and me sometimes too, programmed to all be in that almost like festival mindset. We've talked about you know, the, the, the festival kind of haze, right, of... You see something, you get caught up in it, and everyone's like, that was so great. You get home, and you kind of feel like, was it that good? And a lot of people coming out, you know, Hellraiser premiered, uh, at least in the States, at Fantastic Fest. It's a secret screening. We were Neither of us were there. Um, we were there for the first half. But um, a lot of people I know like came out. I'm not trying to like call them out, but they're like, it was fucking great. I'm like, what? Like, I, I want to ask them, I was like, what did you like about it? Like, why did you like this movie? They saw it first. I mean, uh, to be fair, yeah, like, that's I've, fair. I've gotten caught up in and that I've moment that, yeah. too over ten years of going to Fantastic Fest or watching Sundance movies or whatever. Is that like you watch them and you're like, oh shit, this is awesome because like not only do you see it first, but you get caught up with that first audience who watched it yeah. with you. Like, because like, like Split for me, yeah. Split, uh, the guest is a big one for mm. me to where like. Which I, I still like. But. I like it now, but like I loved it when it first came out. But I sit there and I go, did I love it more because of the environment that I saw it in? Because now when I watch it in my living room, I go, okay, this is good. Three stars. Cool. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I do also agree with what you said about kind of critic proofing it and um, with Jamie Clayton, because like not a really impressive pinhead. Um, I, I think I don't like the voice, which they had digitally altered in some way. Um, and it's also like not her fault. Like it's just not a well done character in, in the film. It, they try to make her like scarier in a way and like less talky, you know, but it's like, 
I, again, I, don't, I think the design doesn't do anybody any favors. It ends up looking more digital, even though I know it's all practical. It's all very shiny. Yeah, the the uh, color grading on this movie does, is really weird because does it them makes no favors. all of the Cenobites look like plastic dolls. Yeah. Um, and it just... I just... I, there's The thing I can say about the film... It just it just left me so cold. It's one of those movies that like I finished it and I forget that I watched the movie, which I think is one of the worst things you can say about a film. This literally goes in my eyes and out my ass. Like it does not leave anything. There's no nutrients <laughs> at all. There's nothing to grab onto because there's a lot of different directions you could take this. Like if I were told to make a Barker adaptation, right? Like I would go like one of two ways. Like I would go super baroque. And make this like globe trotting mystery, almost like a, a better version of Ninth Gate, but like with the with like oh. the box, yeah, like a, almost like a um, a Borges novel, you know, like a Borges short story, just these like you know a real puzzle box of a narrative. Like redo that because that's what kind of what you were saying earlier. What makes the original so great, the film, is the puzzle box kind of narrative too. Of like you you get the layers deeper and deeper and deeper of what's really going on now. A problem with remake, especially one that has to do with a horror film, is like we already know as fans what the end what the end result is. We know what the Cenobites are, but you could do something new with that and kind of twist it around. Or yeah, I was gonna say, but what if we didn't? You know what I'm saying? Like, right. What I would if they do a approached straight... it with the the mindset of like, what if you didn't know what Cenobites are? <sighs> And like, what if we just reinvented them? Exactly. And they kind of reinvent the rules a little bit with like, almost like a ring kind of feel of like, you know, oh God, you, don't you, even get me started. You get stabbed by the thing and then it's like, it, then it comes for you. It's like, it follows or it's like smile or all these like, well, it's very... almost like the genie in the bottle thing to where like at, at a certain point, like it keeps configuring itself to where you actually get to ask Leviathan for like a wish. Like the the mythology, I've seen a lot of people cling to the idea of like it has all this mythology that it's building and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, it's so muddled. Like I don't actually understand what's happening in the movie or what they're trying to, to uh, like gain by continuing with this, this puzzle box or getting it to – because the, one of the main characters who's Goran Vizhnik. Vizhnik, yeah. Right? I think the setup for the movie – is great because it essentially puts the lament configuration in uh, the hands of like a, a jet, like a Jeffrey Epstein yeah. uh, proxy. Yeah. You know, a like, modern heat in this yeah, douchebag to where he's just a rich guy who like collects occult art. But my thing is like, if I were to make that movie, Epstein would be my main character. Like that guy just kind of vanishes. And then again, it, it like, what's her name's daughter? Uh, uh, Pamela Adlon. Pamela Adlon's daughter is like this sad addict who like steals the box and then like gets all of her friends involved and then they have to like hunt down the Epstein surrogate and like it's just fucking bullshit. Like in my version of this, and I hate doing this because I I, I do believe that we should critique like what's on the screen versus what's actually in our heads. But I was so bored with this to your point that I started thinking about, well, how would you make this movie? And it was like, well, why isn't Epstein the main character? Why not make your, like he's the modern Frank, but like elevated to like the highest level of power. 
that's an interesting conceit for a Hellraiser movie. Yeah. Like, why not make it about him? Like, I, it just doesn't make any sense to where it's like you set up this thing to where it's like, oh, okay, this could be fucking fascinating. And it's like, no, it's just another mopey bullshit elevated horror movie. And you're like, well, throw this out the window. I'm done. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really disappointing. Um, and I think another way you could maybe do it is like, cause I don't, I don't know if I have the intelligence to like redo Barker, you know? Um, I wouldn't attempt it. I, I, I would do a straight gore fest. I would, I would go nuts with it and be like, keep the elements the same, like keep the mythology the same and just go nuts with modern practical effects and CGI. Like, I almost, I know you don't like this remake, but I like the remake of Evil Dead, um, the Fede Alvarez film. And sure. I think that one is like, you know, obviously the original Evil Dead is goofier. And so this, that also goes in a similar way of like making it more serious, also about an addict. But like the gore is just like absolutely fucking insane. Oh, it's bonkers. Like I don't dislike the Evil Dead redo. I just... It's gained such a weird reputation where I see people who are like, it's better than the original Evil That's Dead. Bullshit. And you're like, put yourself into a cannon and shoot yourself into the fucking sun. <laughs> but I think of like, again, we, I bring it up probably once every couple episodes, but like, Aja's Hills Have Eyes remake. Oh, you God. Know, of a which guy, is better than Craven's. Which movie. is better than Craven, who, who saw the original, who saw what it lacked, and took modern filmmaking techniques with a little bit of CGI, modern Nicotero burger effects and a budget and did it. It's like, I think if you kind of almost, well, and he applied a voice to it. It's again, the difference between applying a trend versus applying a voice to Mm. something to where like that movie feels like a French new extremity film because it has some political shit on its mind. It wants all the 2000, all the nine 11 shit, all the nine 11 stuff, all the war on terror stuff, all of like the colonialism, like insanity. And like the idea that like those French new extremity guys were going to push you to your absolute limit with how, how much rape, violence, and gore they were going to show you. Yeah. It, um, well, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is like, we'll talk about this when we talk about, you know, another series of films, but like, I feel very similarly about, you know, Gordon Green's Halloween, where it's like, Ugh. where it's like, it, it's also people who are so in love with the original source material, which is dangerous in its own way. Yeah. You know, of like, you, you canonize you know, these filmmakers. And so it's like, oh my God, Carpenter. It's like, dude, like Halloween is a thriller, a straightforward, like basic ass thriller. And it's amazing. Like a Hitchcockian, like the filmmaking, but it's a super simple idea. If you're trying to make it deeper than that, you fucking lose. And I feel the same way with this one too, where it's like, it doesn't, it's in a different way. It doesn't understand again, what makes Hellraiser Hellraiser and tries to like pass off, um, uh, darkness and heaviness with depth which is not there. I mean, it's thin as fucking hell, you know, in term, even thematically for a film that's about trauma. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thin, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I have a friend who said that he's like, Hollywood thinks um, dark equals deep. And this is one of those films where it literally is like just a murky fucking film where it's like, no, we're talking about real shit here. I'm like, but what, what are you, what are you talking about exactly? What is your movie about, sir? Yeah. And it just, and it, again, like, I wish I think you're, I think if we had a more of a a filmmaker with the backing of a studio who's like I want an auteurist vision, you know of 
you know, of Hellraiser. I mean, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a crazy Ari Aster fan, but like someone like that, who is a, like of that, of, of that ilk, who would be interested? I'm I don't know. push back against this. Um, I think one of the reasons that Hellraiser was amazing and that Dawn of the Dead was amazing and that Texas Chainsaw is amazing. The thing that people forget is that the best horror movies of all time came out of nowhere. They came from people that we had never heard of who are these weirdo outsiders Hmm. who had a chip on their shoulder and something to say and said it through like the trappings of genre. That's fair. I think that's what... Like I just was talking about, like we're kind of in a dead zone now. I think the next person who breaks us out of this funk is going to be someone like that. I don't know where they come from, but that's the whole point is that they're going to be one of these outsiders who's just like, guess what? I thought of something for horror because it was in my fucking, like the darkest regions of my heart and I needed to express it through cinema and I only had $700,000 to do so. But this new vision just completely shattered your brain and like rechanged the rules of the game. Like, I think that's who does it next. Give that motherfucker Hellraiser and then watch him cook. Another idea too off of that is while we are in kind of a, a dead zone of like, I think good provocative horror yeah, um, films, not the same with books. We are in a golden age oh, yeah. of amazing new horror authors popping up like Stephen Graham Jones, like Paul Tremblay. Um, and my, my personal favorite, like my just, I think the best horror writer out there right now is Nathan Ballingrude from North Carolina. And he has a collection of, of short stories. One was made into Wounds, the um, one with Army Hammer, which is not very good. It's a bad adaptation. Um, but it's a collection of short stories called Wounds. And half of it has a new horror mythology that seems in, in keeping with Barker of these hellscapes. And like, there's like a, there's a whole thing about these people riding on a ship through um, hell's uh, sea of blood to go to an Island to find this like artifact. And it's like shit like that. So it's like, what I would possibly do is find some of the greatest minds who are like the next thing who are kind of doing Barker's thing, but for a modern audience novelist and being like, let's talk about our story here and then we'll crack it. And then get some amazing filmmaker to bring that. But I think, again, there is a an amazing collection of just, like, great horror novelists right now. Like, really cool, fucked up, transgressed weirdos. weirdos. Like, some really unsettling shit, you know? Um, and and we talked about, again, Terrifier 2 last week, you know? Um, Damien Leone, true weirdo. Yeah, and, like, he doesn't have, again, the Baroque nature of Barker. But I will say what I really appreciate about about you know, terrifier. It's like, here's my movie, man. Like yeah. take, take it or leave it. And there's no pastiche. There's no, there's no meta-ness. It is just like huge <laughs> hit for what it's it, what it it's is doing too. really well. It's like up over a million dollars in theatrical business. I would have never thought that fucking terrifier too would make money at the box office. But it like, it just shows how like people want, these outsider visions like that's who creates these cults and that's who the the people who love horror cling to like we don't cling to these safe like buttoned up like like dilettantes who are coming in and get studio backing like i want a guy with no money and a camera who's like i'm gonna fuck you up yeah when you think about to we talked about prey a couple months ago you know also a 20th century studios 
Disney release on Hulu. And that was a complete success. I mean, now I think the difference obviously is, is that it's a lot easier to play in that world. The pitch of like, imagine the first time the predators came to earth and it's, and it's during the you know height of the Comanche nation when French trappers were coming and it's like, cool. And then it's doing that. Like the pitch is great. It's strong. There's a history of like the dark horse comics of like, here's, you can tell stories in that world very easily. But again, with Barker, it's just much more complicated. It's not as simple as putting pinhead on the screen. Um, it's much headier, you know, it's much more thematic and problematic um, and, pro- like, and problematic. Like Barker's a problematic dude. And I think that's part of why mm-hmm. you don't want anybody else to adapt him is because you lose a bit of that. And frankly, like people are scared of that shit. Now they don't want stuff that's actually transgressive anymore. They want something that's just easy to swallow and will go down and that they can tell like their friends about without seeming like, you know, they're crossing any lines. Yeah. I mean, I had friends at work, you know, being like, Oh, did you watch Hellraiser? Yeah, these are people I did not think were horror people, and, and they've watched it. And that's like this is extreme for like non horror people, like straight right. up like that's it. It's like ooh, because like I mean like yeah, it's still like if you've never seen the original, like the idea is fucked up, and like those are like gross figures, people who are like split open and flayed. But again, even for that, it's like that's it. You know, I think about a film like Event Horizon, you know, which is a fucking studio picture, and that movie's like fucked up. Like that is a fucked up. That is yeah. a fucked up movie. Well, that's it basically was, Hellraiser in space. Absolutely, and it's amazing. Well, Martin, we kind of already spoiled what next week is going to be. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to be talking about uh, the David Gordon Green Halloween movies and the Halloween franchise in general. Just because Halloween ends is coming out, um, I'm dreading it. So prepare yourselves, but you'll have to tune in next week to see if it's any good or not. We'll see you next time. Bye.